My podcast guest today is a legend in the world of omega-3. Dr. Bill Harris is professor in the Department of Medicine in the Sanford School of Medicine at the University of South Dakota. He has been a front runner in both measuring omega-3 status. He developed the omega-3 index, running studies on the effect of omega-3 with more than 300 published pieces of research to date, backed by five NIH, National Institute of Health grants, perhaps best known for his expertise in relation to omega-3 and heart health. But today I am honored to have him as my guest on the back of his latest study on omega-3 status as a predictor of Alzheimer's and dementia. Thank you very much for coming on my podcast, Bill. Hey, very good. Enjoyed it. Before asking you about your latest study, um, how did you get started in this amazing career researching and shining the light for so many on omega-3? Um, I was basically told to do this by my uh, postdoc mentor. Um, I finished a PhD in 78 in nutrition and uh, decided to focus on nutrition and heart disease and, and lipids metabolism. So I went to work uh, with a guy named Bill Connor in Portland, Oregon. Um, and Bill was a a physician, researcher, interested in the effects of different fats on on blood cholesterol levels in those days. Uh, and he assigned me to study the effects of salmon oil on cholesterol level in normal individuals because he would <clears throat> he was curious to whether uh, the it, it was the liquidness because we knew polyunsaturated fatty acids and vegetable oils lowered cholesterol. Animal fats, solid fats raised cholesterol. We didn't know if it was the <clears throat> liquidness or the animalness of the oils that was important in driving cholesterol levels. So he said, well, here's a here's a liquid oil that is, but it's from a fish. It's from an animal. So, you know, kind of crosses the border. So he said, why don't you set up a study and look at, you know, recruit some healthy volunteers around the campus. And we'll feed them you know, four weeks of a high fish oil diet, four weeks of a high vegetable oil diet, and four weeks of a high animal fat diet. And so we did that. And that's kind of where we discovered that fish oil uh, lowered triglyceride levels. This was um, late 70s. And they're blood fats, which of course are a terribly important measure for heart disease. Right, right. So blood triglycerides. Um, and we also studied the effects on, on blood clotting, platelet function, because there was an interest in bleeding in those days. That was the actual hypothesis from Dr. Dyerberg and Bang of the Greenland Eskimo, uh, the Greenland Eskimo researchers from Denmark, who uh, started the whole omega-3 field pretty much. Because um, they hypothesized that it was the anti, uh, blood thinning, essentially the anti-thrombotic effects of omega-3 that were protective against heart, heart attacks. So we were also interested in studying platelet function. Yeah, that was, uh, we had Professor Hugh Sinclair um, uh, later knighted for his work, and he went and lived with the Inuit, and uh, they had a very high intake of saturated fat, very high intake of cholesterol, but remarkably low uh, cardiovascular disease. So he, he shipped uh, a crate of seal meat, which was their diet, back with him to Cambridge. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's Oxford, I think, actually. And I do remember that he he left an endowment for a chair in nutrition uh, at Oxford, but they never took it up. Really? 
So there is no chair in nutrition, medicine, but no nutrition. And ironically, well, it's 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 actually sad, but I was uh, a colleague of mine who used to be vice dean there, was sitting in on their lecture on diabetes. And at the end of the lecture where they'd had seven minutes on nutrition, the lecturer said, by the way, that is all you're getting in your medical training on nutrition. So <laughs> seven minutes. I know. Anyway, you, your study has just come out uh, looking at omega-3, DHA, and also non-DHA in relation to dementia and Alzheimer's. Quite a big study. It looked at data from over 26,000 people. What did it find? Uh, we found that uh, <clears throat> higher levels of DHA and non-DHA, actually. And what, why non-DHA? Okay. We were using data from the UK Biobank. Uh, the blood samples, the plasma samples in the UK Biobank were analyzed by a group in Finland called uh, Nightingale Laboratories. The methodology they use to measure fatty acids is not as precise, is not as uh, selective as gas chromatography, which is what we use and most other people use. So they only knew DHA levels and total omega-3. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> that's what you have to work with. So we, we looked at DHA and, and its relationships with ultimately developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And then we looked at all the omega-3s except DHA. So it's the pool of EPA, DPA, and ALA, uh, which we can't disentangle from in this study. And perhaps we should explain here that you start off with alpha-linolenic acid in the vegetable kingdom. It's very rich in leaves. It's very rich in cold so, for example, you'd find it in seaweed. And that alpha-linolenic acid converts into EPA, which has a good reputation for depression and inflammation. From EPA, icosapentaenoic acid, into docosapentaenoic acid. There's a six in there. No, there's a five. It's still a five, isn't five it? In there, right, yeah. Right. And then it converts to docosahexaenoic acid, DHA, which uh, our previous <laughs> podcast guest, uh, discovered was very prevalent in every brain, big or small animal, there's lots and lots of DHA. So you found that both DHA and non-DHA and total omega-3 is quite predictive of Alzheimer's? Yeah, it is. We we did we've, we followed these people around 10 years from when the blood was drawn to when uh, the end of the follow-up period, and then we looked at who developed dementia and who didn't. Uh, and we found that the higher the omega-3 level, whether it's DHA or non-DHA total, uh, the lower the risk for developing. And this this confirms what we saw in our own study in Framingham, mm -hmm. uh, which was really the same, fundamentally the same finding. So it's nice to confirm in, in the UK yeah. and in the United States. So that's to say, so so is there now a consistent finding? Do we have an emerging consensus that increased omega-3 status is definitely reducing risk for dementia. Yeah, I, I don't know how you can avoid it. Yeah. And what sort of, uh, you know, do we have a percentage of that? You know, what sort of scale of effect? Uh, that's a good question. <clears throat> um, the two studies we've done, one in the UK Biobank, one in Framingham, are a little bit different. The one in Framingham, uh, we only study people over 65, mm -hmm. age 65. And in that group, uh, we found that the people with the highest omega-3 level, which was roughly about an omega-3 index of, say, 7, 7 to 8%, which we'll talk about later, but the highest omega-3 levels, they were about 50% less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. 
compared to people who are in the lowest omega-3 level. That's the way we do these yeah. studies. I mean, that, um, that's an amazing mm -hmm. effect, really. Well, yeah. And again, it's I, I try to not call it an effect. It's an association. You appreciate mm -hmm. that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, if it was a randomized trial where we gave DHA or EPA and then saw a 50% reduction, that would be all over the headlines because that would be more compelling that it's a cause mm -hmm. and not just pretend, possibly an incidental finding. So <clears throat> we, uh, we have to work, you know, nutrition is a tough area to research. So why yeah. is omega-3 and particularly DHA so important for the brain? Well, that's, a, you know, Michael is the expert on that, your, your last guest. Um, but it certainly we know that the brain tissue, the, the, the membranes of the brain are, are very highly enriched with DHA and arachidonic acid on the omega-6 side, pretty equally. Um, and, you know, why is that? We don't know why. We know the effect of it is that it makes the uh, neurons transmit signals and the synapses work properly. You get better connections. You get uh, better better uh, retention and memories and all this kind of stuff. But you know the the really really basic why type question that a physiologist or biochemist would ask. Um, I don't think we really know that yet. Yeah, I mean the the neuronal membrane, you know, the sort of skin, if you like. It's not. It's a bit more than the skin because it's the it's the it's the um, the barrier through which all communication is occurring. Is very rich in DHA what we call phosphorylated DHA. DHA mm -hmm. bounds to phospholipids, which, by the way, are also very rich in fish, uh, also very rich in eggs. And that binding depends upon methylation, and methylation is dependent on B vitamins. So I got very interested in three relatively recent studies that showed that omega-3 is codependent on B vitamins, or rather that people who have a high homocysteine level, which means you're not doing methylation, that's the measure of methylation, uh, don't benefit from omega-3. And I'm talking here about the Swedish trial Omeg-Ad, uh, which gave a hefty 2.3 you know, gram dose of omega-3, uh, and they found no effect overall. And then when they looked at their uh, blood samples at baseline, they found that those in the third highest homocysteine, which means the worst you know, B vitamin status, had no effect. And those in the third lowest homocysteine had a massive effect. You know, and then, right. this, and then this was repeated the other way around in a study called B-Proof in Holland, where they got a mild effect of the B vitamins. And then when they went back to their baseline blood levels, they found the third with the lowest omega-3 in the blood, no effect. Third with the highest omega-3, a very big effect. And that confirmed exactly the same finding of Professor David Smith. So, you know, does this explain the inconsistent findings, you know, that some studies work and some studies don't because they haven't actually realized that these two nutrients, B vitamins and omega-3 are actually codependent? Well, it's, it certainly could. Uh, it certainly could be part of the explanation. Uh, and it's a really novel, very interesting finding. Uh, it certainly suggests that you should probably take be sure you're uh, well neutrotrives yeah. with omega-3 and with uh, B vitamins yeah. and choline as well, probably, which is part of that whole uh, you know, yeah. methyl transfer group. Yeah, right? choline is, uh, is part of that phospholipid, phosphatidylcholine. 
And of course, there's very little if you're vegan. You know, there's a little bit in broccoli, a little bit in almonds. But, you know, if you are on a, a vegan type diet, you struggle to get omega-3. Hence, you have to supplement it. You know, you can get DHA now derived from seaweed and algae and so on. And you struggle to get choline. And of course, you struggle to get B12. And B12 is a major driver of methylation. So and B12 is also terribly rich in seafood. So it's kind of an emerging understanding of the synergy um, of nutrients. Now, you are, uh, I think this may be the right term, the originator, or you helped to develop the omega-3 index. Tell us what it is and why you report a person's omega-3 status in this way. And why is it superior to other ways of reporting a person's omega-3 status? Sure. Uh, so the omega-3 index is a name that uh, I and uh, my colleague, Clemens von Schacke, who's a cardiologist in Munich, uh, we came up with that name back in 2004 when we wrote our original paper proposing that the omega-3 index is a risk factor, uh, particularly at those, in those days for heart disease. Um, and the omega-3 index is the red blood cell content of EPA and DHA. So the red cell membrane is made up of phospholipids, as you said. Uh, every phospholipid is esterified to two fatty acids. And so there are lots of fatty acids in the red cell membrane, uh, about 24 or 27 that we measure. Um, and we ask what percent of the total is EPA and DHA. And that usually runs from somewhere like 2% to maybe in Japan, 10 or 12%. So that's kind of the normal range. The, the average in the US and, and probably the UK is something around five, five and a half percent uh, for the omega-3 index. In <clears throat> vegans, it's down around three and a half percent. And what we think, we proposed back then in 2004 that it was uh, an omega-3 index of 8% or better was the goal, the target, the healthy, a healthy level uh, based on studies available at that time. Uh, and that's pretty well held up. We've now seen that same 8% 8 omega-3 index uh, be associated with reduced risk for total mortality, for cardiovascular mortality, for cancer mortality, and for other causes of mortality. So the, the 8%, I think is still a good number. Um, this is a reason we like red blood cells, membrane measuring, because that's where omega-3 fatty acids live. They live in membranes um, and they are present in every membrane in the body. Uh, and the more you eat, the higher they are to a point. Uh, there's a leveling out, but eventually uh, you, can, you can saturate your membranes with omega-3 and then it doesn't go any higher. Uh, and we, we think... Uh, that's where they do their action. They, they make membrane uh, function better. They help with the, because of the structures of membranes, which are extremely complicated. Of course, membranes in every cell are the, the innkeeper. They, they let stuff in and they let stuff out and they don't, and they control the response to external signals, uh, like an inflammatory stimulus might hit the outside of the membrane of a cell and if there's enough member omega-3 there the, the cell will not uh, respond with a huge inflammatory response it'll be appropriate muted 
not no response, but the, the membrane controls all that. And so the red blood cell membrane is what we measure. And, and that's what we present the omega-3 index as. And doesn't it just reflect how much omega-3 you happen to have eaten or supplemented that day? No. It's, it's, it's very much like uh, hemoglobin A1C versus plasma glucose. Uh, plasma glucose varies a lot every day, up and down and up and down. But the red blood cell, hemoglobin A1C, of course, is measured in red cells. Mm -hmm. And it's a marker of like two to three months worth of average uh, glucose levels. Mm -hmm. And that's what the red cell omega-3 level is also it's analogous to that. It's not susceptible to a huge intakes uh, of omega-3 from fish or capsules. And are there tests out there that are not giving accurate results? I mean, is there a sort of quality control issue in the measurement of omega-3? Well, not accurate is not the right way to say it. Uh, different numbers. Mm -hmm. There's different pools. But of course, omega-3 fatty acids, all fatty acids are present both in the plasma, the serum, and in the cells, the blood cells. Uh, and it's about 50-50, roughly. Uh, you got about half the fatty acids are in your, your plasma and half the fatty acids are in your red cells. And it's the same. It's a different mix in red cells and plasma. So there are some laboratories that measure plasma omega-3 levels and they'll report it different ways. They'll report it as a percent like we do for red blood cells. They'll report it a percent of total plasma. Or they'll be a little more specific and just look at the plasma phospholipid fraction. Mm -hmm ignoring the triglycerides, ignoring the cholesterol esters, which are the other pools of fatty acids. And they just report plasma phospholipid percent. Well, that's a different number than plasma total mm -hmm. fatty acid percent. Or they'll report the plasma level as a concentration, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, 50 nanogram per mil. Okay, well, it's very hard to translate those. Yes. You can't communicate if, if you have different... Uh, different metrics, different units, um, and that's that's really been a big challenge in making fatty acids making their way into the clinic because yeah. you have different labs reporting different values. Uh, I mean, just just to back up, twenty years ago, nobody's reporting any kind of omega three metric. So I think we've come a long way. Yeah. We could be, do better uh, if we all had a harmonious. Everybody uses the same metric. Yeah, and in, in recent years, I've seen more and more studies using the omega-3 index. And at our charity, foodforthebrain.org, that's what we decided to go for. We measure omega-3 index. So one question I have to ask is when, I mean, I'll tell you a funny story here. About 20 years ago, I started promoting um, that vitamin D should be taken by everybody in the winter. And about 15 years ago, I did a major campaign on that. And as a consequence, I got reported to the uh, Advertising Standards Agency uh, in the UK because you're not allowed. There is a rule that says you cannot uh, imply that you can't get all the nutrients you need from well-balanced diet. So I've got a black <laughs> I've got a black mark against me because I said you cannot get enough vitamin D in the winter from your diet. And, and now the government actually recommend exactly that to supplement. But the point here was back in those days, anything above, and we have different measures in the UK to the to the US, but it was uh, anything about 50 nanomoles uh, was good. Uh, and then that has sort of drifted to 75 uh, nanomoles. In the States, it's, it's 2.5 divide down. 
And uh, now we're sort of starting to realize that people seem to be healthier above 100. And at the Grassroots uh, uh, Health Foundation, they, they actually tracked people's sort of flu incidents and severity during COVID. And uh, they found that 125 seemed to be like optimal. So when you say eight, you've said two things. One is 8% is the number to be above. And you've also said that there is a saturation point where you don't get higher numbers. So are you seeing any sort of curve there? Is 8% really optimal or is it just good? <laughs> um, optimal is hard to say. I Partly because there are so few human beings on this planet who have an omega-3 index over 8% that mm -hmm. you could actually do a study on. Uh, it's the Japanese, there is some um, evidence from Japan where omega-3 index levels are high. The average, certainly historically, I mean, the young people today are becoming westernized, but using uh, data in uh, traditional Japanese diet, the average was around 9% omega-3 index. So there are people up in 11, 12, 13. Uh, and when the Japanese uh, do observational studies on relationships between fatty acids and outcomes, they did find that people who had a omega-3 index, I think it was 11, had a significantly lower risk for heart attack. I mean, hardly anybody has heart attacks in Japan anyway, but relative to everybody else, those with 11 did better than those that were average, like around eight. So there's some evidence that being mm -hmm. at 11 might be a little bit better, but uh, and given the fact that you know, 90, 95% of people in the US and probably the UK uh, are below eight anyway, uh, I'm not going to fight that fight. Yeah, but I mean, am I, allowed to, am I allowed to ask you what yours is and what you'd like it to be? Well, it's around 10. Yeah. It's around 10. We I try to keep it high. Um, I'm My blood is sort of the the control for our laboratory assay, you know, so I, I need to keep it up there. Yeah, I've got to remeasure mine because I measured mine a couple of years ago and it was 7.7. .7. Yeah, and then yeah. I increased my intake uh, uh, higher. But we'll talk a little bit you know, more about that later, because the issue is that many people will assume that if they eat fish a couple of times a week, they're fine. Um, in reality, is this true? Have you looked at reported fish intake and omega-3 index? What do you have to be doing to get up to 8%? Yeah, we looked at... Um... We started asking people who were submitting blood samples uh, to Omega Quant, our, our laboratory, started asking them how much, how often they ate oily fish, not white fish, oily fish, and how often, uh, and whether they took supplements or not. And that's about as granular as we could get. And then we reported, uh, we looked at the relationship between the Omega-3 index of those people and whether they took supplements or not, and how much fish they ate. And it turned out that to be, to have an average, average omega-3 index was associated with people who ate three fish meals a week and took supplements. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are certainly people who didn't take any supplements who could do it all with fish. And there are people that didn't eat any fish at all and took supplements and had an omega-3 index of eight. But it's it's kind of a mix. Uh, we think, generally speaking, in order to be up around eight, you need to take probably 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams a day consistently. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, which, you know, it sounds a lot, but it's actually completely consistent with our evolution. Uh, you know, people don't realize that, that you know, before, I mean, the process of our brains growing and humanity moving along the water's edge and the rich shores of oysters and mussels and little fish and, you know, etc. It, it wouldn't have been difficult in those days to get a lot of fish. And in fact, where I live in Wales, they found a 40,000-year-old Homo sapiens on the Gower Peninsula. Uh, and uh, the, the skeleton was surrounded by necklaces and jewelry of shells. Uh, when they analyzed the bones, uh, they found that almost a quarter of the diet was marine food. Oh, wow. Uh, and when you think that they would have been expending, I mean, to be honest, three times the calories we do today, hunting and gathering and fishing and whatever, you know, it means about half of our diet would have to be marine food to get to the into the zone that our ancestors used to eat so it doesn't it makes sense to me from an evolutionary point of view that since we're so sedentary having maybe three servings of oily fish and supplements is kind of the way to go yeah well, right now when we say white fish oily fish and you know salmon doesn't appear to be that much oilier you know than cod or something <laughs> it, it, is there a big difference between white fish and oily fish you know what's what's going on there yeah they're they're certainly imperfect descriptors of fish um, and oily we don't you don't think of salmon as dripping fat off of itself it's not it's just a higher fat fish mm -hmm. um and yes there certainly is i mean you look at the extremes of like tilapia which mm -hmm. is a very low fat fish cod meat is very low fat and if it's low fat even if it's even if it's 50 percent omega-3 doesn't make much difference if you've only got you know a tenth of a gram of fat per serving. You know you're just not going to get much by mass. Salmon is uh, salmon, sardines, herring, uh, albacore tuna is quite good, like twice as much omega three as a chunk pink light tuna. Um, anchovies, anybody actually eats them? Um, mm, I love anchovies. Make a lovely, you. A, a lovely Sicilian pasta with tomatoes and anchovies and things. <laughs> <laughs> a developed taste, no doubt. Uh, yes. And mackerel. And mackerel. Now there's an oily fish. Yeah. Right. So we call them the smash fish. S-M-A-S-H, right? Um, sardines or salmon, mackerel, anchovies, herring, and the other h uh there's there's salmon sardines there's two s's smash. sardines there's two s's yeah, that's yeah, right yeah. No, i like that that's a i've never heard of the smash diet i like that and, <laughs> and one thing you've already mentioned is that some people uh got higher levels despite eating less so is there much variability in in people's ability to make use of omega-3 3 from food and what factors play a part yeah that's a great question. That's a, that's an active research question right now. What what are the factors beside the obvious intake that controls blood levels of omega three? And we really don't know. Intake explains about fifty percent, fifty six percent of of the uh, variability in blood levels. Uh, and so you know people are looking at genetics to see if some of these. Uh, mutations in fatty acid desaturase genes or elongase genes uh, plays much of a role in determining levels and it's, they don't so far um, actually the 
the genetic factors that can affect fatty acids will affect omega-6 fatty acid levels more than omega-3. Omega-3 is almost, it's diet is, is the thing that seems to do it. Um, there certainly could be, uh, I think we have some evidence that choline plays some role in that, that higher choline is necessary to get higher levels. But um, it, that's a very active area of research. It, yeah, so, my, I mean, my, no. my sort of thought about that, you know, it's, it's a question more than anything else, is since that DHA, omega-3, has got to be bound to the phospholipid to make that phosphorylated DHA, which becomes part of the membrane, and since that process is B vitamin dependent, and also the further down you go from the linolenic acid in the seaweed down to the DHA, so, you know, you're getting more and more complex, more and more biologically active, and also more and more prone to oxidation. Uh, it sort of struck me that a person who might have poor B vitamin status, raised homocysteine, maybe lack of B12, and a lack of antioxidants, not eating fruit and veg and herbs and spices, perhaps a smoker might end up with omega-3 that doesn't get incorporated into the, the membrane and instead gets oxidized in the blood and that might show up as a low omega-3 index, despite apparently taking in a lot of omega-3 from seafood or supplements. I mean, what's your thought about that potential scenario? Yeah, um, well, smokers, when we look at smokers, they do have a lower omega-3 index than non-smokers. Um, whether that's because of destruction, in vivo destruction of the fatty acids, or the fact that the smokers just don't eat as much fish um, has not been teased out yet, but it's a pretty consistent finding. Uh, being susceptible to oxidation, um, that's certainly true outside the body in the test tube. Uh, I, there are so many antioxidant systems in the body uh, and they're so complexly intertwined uh, that it's hard for me to get too worried about I, in vivo oxidation of omega-3s. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's, uh, nobody's really shown that I'm aware of that taking vitamin E or not, along with omega-3 is going to give you a significantly higher omega-3 index. Mm -hmm. That would be an easy study to do, mm -hmm. um, but it's not been done to my knowledge. Uh, so that's, I'm not sure that's a part of it, but I, I think I, I think you're onto something with the uh, the whole um, um, methylation pathways, all the B vitamins that are involved with methylation. That, that certainly could play a role. Yeah, we're sitting on the data so far of over four hundred thousand people who've taken the cognitive function test. So we have a, a hard measure there. It's a validated test, filled in a questionnaire. We're answering questions about smoking, about omega three status, mm -hmm. so we could control, you know, for that. And now, um, thanks to your support, I have to say, we're starting to measure omega-3 index and homocysteine. So, you know, these are things that we really can tease out in yeah. quite, quite large numbers. Now, right now, many people in the nutritional medicine field are very down on omega-6 fats. Yet, as Professor Michael Crawford also found out, the omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, sometimes called AA, is almost as prevalent in brains as omega-3 DHA. So 
why we have this big backlash against omega-6. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, right. <clears throat> so there's been, right. Uh, there's been this black hat, white hat thing about omega-6 being bad, omega-3 being good. And it came from the early discovery, really, that the enzymes that uh, create prostaglandins, like, like cyclooxygenase, um, can take an omega-6 or omega-3. It's the same enzyme. And if you've got more omega-6 substrate, arachidonate, it will reduce the omega-3s that get produced, omega-3 metabolites. So it's, it's using up the enzyme capacity. Right, right. It's, it's, it's a matter of a substrate availability. There's more mm -hmm. substrate of omega-6. And that applies to linoleic acid versus alpha-linolenic acid being, convert, being create, converted to the longer chain metabolites too. They compete. Uh, and so, and plus we know that arachidonic acid has been the uh, primary source uh, of lots and lots of pro-inflammatory mediators. It's actually the source of a lot of anti-inflammatory ones too, which makes it more complicated. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the idea that the omega-6s just got labeled as bad. Omega-3s are good. We pe people look at the increased intake of omega-6 fatty acids over the last hundred years and try to lay on top of that a bunch of diseases that have become more common. And it's really complicated to do that. Um, but I'm not in that camp. I'm, I'm not um, one that thinks omega-6s are bad. I think, and people talk about omega-6, omega-3 ratios. Um, and I'm, not a fan of that ratio uh, because I think it's for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's um, it's not precise. It doesn't tell you which. There's like seven omega-6 fatty acids in the blood that we measure, and there's four omega-3s. And just to say omega-6 writ large, omega-3 writ large implies that they're all the same. And mm -hmm. you just pull them all together, and that's not true. Uh, we know that's Plus, we know that linoleic acid levels in the blood are, are strong predictors of good health outcomes, whether it's mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And right now we're working on a paper looking at omega-6 omega levels in the UK Biobank and total mortality. Mm -hmm. and the higher your linoleic acid is, the longer you live. Yeah, and no, so it's, it's it's interesting. And and the omega-6 linoleic acid, that's kind of like the um, you know, the 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 father of the omega-6 family. It it, right. moves, it moves on down to gamma linolenic acid, which is in uh, evening primrose oil and borage. And from there it generates prostaglandins, but also arachidonic acid, which is sort of good and bad. It's sort of pro-inflammatory, but very, very rich in the brain. Yeah, so I, I kind of move towards I supplement um, GLA, uh, gamma linolenic acid, as a sort of more biologically active omega-6, and EPA and, and a little bit of DPA and DHA, maybe 10 times more of that than the GLA. Okay. I don't avoid yeah. omega-6. I love tahini as an example. Uh, I do eat oily fish. That's So I, I kind of want, you know, I want a bit of both. That's kind of what yeah. I'm... Well, I, I just hope we can get away from this uh, well, this simple-minded dichotomy that omega sixes are bad. Mm -hmm. they, they're just not, and there may be some that are, but in the it's just far more complicated than this. Yeah, and also when you talk about the same enzymes are required for the conversion of these, you know, 
these sort of father mother uh, omega three omega six, and those enzymes, of course, are very dependent on well cofactor nutrients: B three, niacin, B six, vitamin C, zinc, magnesium, and of course, these are nutrients that are you know phenomenally deficient. I mean, zinc and magnesium are probably the two most commonly deficient minerals. So there is this idea that if you're having to process a lot of omega-6 or well, either way, uh, and you lack the nutrients to do so, you just don't get the conversions. Yeah. Uh, do, I mean, that's, think... that's interesting. Uh, I know there was one paper that puzzled me some years ago that they looked at the intake of green leafy vegetables. I mean, it's some nutrition survey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it appeared that you got a higher blood omega-3 level if you ate more green leafy vegetables. I mean, and all things being equal. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and maybe it's the the B vitamins, all those other, the, the zincs and magnesiums and uh, mm. et cetera. Um, it's never, it has not been studied in the kind of reductionist way that we like to do it. You know, let's give omega-3, then give, then just give one vitamin, B6 mm-hmm. or something, or B12 and see what happens. Or then give choline and then see what happens. I mean, that would be an, a good study to do because i don't know that the conversion of ala to epa is rate limited mm-hmm. by the lack of these other nutrients mm-hmm. I, I i don't know that that's the case we may be deficient in some sense but maybe that enzyme has got enough of what it needs and it's really lacking in something else uh, yeah they're very they're very hard questions and that's the issue with nutrition and funnily enough to give you the context of this for those listening i i did the first study uh with a lovely professor david benton where we took um uh, we took 90 school kids put a third onto a high strength multivitamin and mineral no omega-3 at that time and a third onto a placebo and a third onto nothing and we got a 10 10 point increase in iq non-verbal iq on the supplements and a three point uh, on the placebo so a seven point difference which was massive and it was a very good study it's never been criticized in any respect of its design or statistics it got published in the lancet it got filmed by bbc horizon and then i remember a child psychiatrist came to me and said well this is useless because you don't know what did it was it the <laughs> b1 or the b2 or the this etc and so it was sort of ironical that i've actually watched every individual nutrient tested for its effects in iq and none of them had an effect. I think it was one B vitamin had a small effect on its own, but the combination works. And there lies the issue. Nutrients are synergistic. That we've evolved alongside these nutrients. It's very, very hard to tease them out in a sort of randomized controlled yeah. trial way. And on top of that, we're talking about things that can't be patented. So there's very little money to do the research. And uh, Totally you know, right. Totally right. You need to send me that paper. I'm not aware of that paper you're talking about. No, I will send you that. Absolutely. And it was front page of every newspaper. And it really was the first study of its kind in the world that got people thinking, oh, my God, what I eat has an effect, you know, on my intelligence. Yeah. yeah. So talking about intelligence, if everyone got their omega-3 index above 8%, what effect would that have not only on mental health and dementia, but also all health, especially risk for heart attacks and strokes? Well... I've never been asked it quite that way. Um, it's a good way to think about it. Uh, how, how much, like how many people would live five years longer, for example, you know. Um, 
we have a little hint about that uh, in a paper we published uh, on dementia and omega-3 in Framingham, where we found the people with the highest omega-3 lived dementia-free for about an extra four years compared to those who had the lowest omega-3. So that's, <clears throat> it, it wasn't as impactful as having APOE genotype but it was for a nutrient, it was uh, pretty impactful. Say an extra four years of dementia-free life. Uh, that's huge, that could be huge. Now, <clears throat> and I think we also looked at uh, relationship between smoke, we kind of compared high omega-3 to being uh, a non-smoker. And this was looking at total mortality. And this was in another paper in Framingham. We found that the people who lived, excuse me, the people who were non-smokers and had the highest omega-3 lived, uh, let's see, like I think about 20% of them died in the window follow-up we looked at. And if you were a smoker and you had low omega-3, only about 50% of them survived that, that in that window of time. Uh, so there was a, certainly a prolongation of life. I, I, Trying to remember if we actually quantified how many years that was. But interestingly, being a non-smoker um, and having a low omega-3 was kind of the same risk for death as being a smoker and have a, having a high omega-3. Mm. So they kind of canceled each other in a way, The being a smoker and having a high omega-3. Um, what, what about heart attacks and, and uh, maybe strokes as well? Because... You know, omega-3, there have been times when it says it's fantastic for the heart. Everyone must have it. And it used to be prescribable as Omacor. Uh, you know, right. doctors could prescribe omega-3. And then <clears throat> it seems to be no longer prescribable. And then recently out of the EU uh, came this, uh, I thought it was a bit trumped up, uh, you know, a risk that if you have too much omega-3 supplements, you even get atrial fibrillation so it's kind of gone in and out uh, you know but maybe that's not what the science shows is there a oh. is there a clear link between omega-3 intake omega-3 index and risk for heart attack cardiovascular disease stroke oh yeah absolutely um and we've we're i'm, I'm part of a group called force f-o-r-c-e which is a fatty acid outcomes research consortium and we look at blood omega-3 levels in multiple cohorts like Framingham, like UK Biobank, like Eric, around the, around the world. And we pool all of the data <clears throat> and we look at omega-3 levels at baseline and then over 10, 12, 15 years, who develops what disease. And we consistently see higher, the highest omega-3 group always has less heart attacks it has less less death from all causes, less death from cancer. It has less incidence of chronic kidney disease, has less risk for stroke. Um, what else have we got? Diabetes, less risk for diabetes. Uh, so having a high omega-3 is associated, I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is associated with avoidance of a lot of the chronic diseases that put us away. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So let's talk some practicalities. Okay. Uh, 
So mm. what I do from studying all the evidence is I, I eat three servings of oily fish a week. I may have mackerel, sardine, yes, occasional anchovy. I also like uh, tarama salata, uh, the fish eggs. Oh, uh, I don't know that. Yeah, it's a sort of Greek, a Greek dish. So it's like creamy, but it's from the fish eggs. I also supplement 500 milligram of DHA and about the same of EPA because, you know, when you buy a fish oil, it's, it's, it's kind of generally in that proportion. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I have about 50 milligram of GLA, which is the omega-6. So I'm having about 10 times more omega-3 than omega-6. I eat whole foods. I supplement all those cofactors, actually, B3, niacin, B6, zinc, magnesium, vitamin C. I don't avoid omega-6 rich foods. You know, does that make sense? What do you do and what do you recommend? I know sometimes as a scientist, one isn't allowed to exactly you know, recommend outside of the box of the actual research. But you know, what, what do you recommend? What would you advise your family to do? And what do you do yourself? Well, yeah, what do I, I'm not quite as, as uh, attentive as you are to the different one. I take a multivitamin. And I take about 1,400 milligrams of EPA DHA a day. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe some magnesium once in a while, but it's, I'm not real consistent with it. Um, so that's kind of what I do. What you do. And what do you so, eat? And what do you eat? Yeah. Oh, what do I eat? I, I try to eat oh. twice a week uh, uh, an oily fish. Typically, it's salmon. That's just what we do. Um, my wife doesn't like sardines, mackerel, herring uh anchovies uh so here we are salmon which is fine it's 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 quite read, readily available and very good um so we do that and um whole foods i don't i'm not i'm not a as good as i should be on eating whole foods i will eat you know pizza hamburger now and again you know and that's fine the grandkids are around you know <laughs> you, you got to do these things um but uh, I, I think, I mean, I like when you were going through your litany of things. Uh, that all sounds good to me. Uh, and, and now what is it about? Is it tahini? Is that what you said? Tahini. Yes. Tahini. So what I, I know that's, it's I know a, kind of what it is, but what's the fatty acid composition of that? It's, it's omega-6 because it's from, it's from sesame seed. So it's oh, okay. uh, you know, a big oh. thing from Turkey and Greece, tahini. And uh, if you... I happen to be dairy allergic, and uh, you can actually make a lot of dishes creamy by adding a little tahini. And the okay. same is true with this taramosolata, which is a, the fish roe. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, it's it's very, very delicious stuff. And I, if I ever add uh, an essential fat, you know, to a food, I always do it at the end. Not, a, you know, I do it, I do it. So I've cooked the food. I'm trying not to overcook you know, the fats. So I, I don't tend to fry. I mean, yeah. I, I make a kedgeri, which is a lovely dish with brown rice and, and vegetables and mackerel. It's usually done with uh, with uh, haddock and also a sardine pate. Because mm -hmm. we in the UK, less than 5% of children achieve the very basic recommendations for omega-3, less than 5%. And a lot of it is because they don't, like fish they don't know how to do things with fish and michael crawford he was making the point that we should be weaning children at a very young age onto salmon so they get used to that 
um, flavor. So I think a lot of people just, and you're in Dakota. I, I, I was interesting. I was thinking not a lot of salmon there, I would imagine, but then I know you, <laughs> no, you, you, right. teamed up, you teamed up with someone in Oregon. I think there's, you know, there's a bit more salmon there, I would think. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yes. North, <laughs> we're in central North America and it's, there's no salmon around you, but yeah. you can get, you can get salmon. Plenty of stores are pretty fresh, good enough salmon. Yeah. That's not a problem. So you've got um, more, you've got more cattle and also more sunshine than we do. <laughs> that's true. That is uh, true. But more snow in the winter. Have you had any yet? <clears throat> not really. Yeah. No, not yet. We're, I, my wife and I like snow. We, we, we yeah. enjoy the snow. So yeah, I think, I think last year you got it quite heavy, didn't you? You're right. We had a very heavy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, you're, you're all uh, very good at eating fish and chips though, right? Yes, absolutely. White fish. White fish, fried. And chips. And chips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, the thing, yeah, the thing that intrigued me was, you know, that up until 1990 in the East End of London, you would get free oysters with your pint of beer. Really? Yeah. And, and New York uh, was just a mass of oysters. It was the biggest oyster bed. And in the early 1800s, the, the daily consumption of oysters in New York was one million. And instead of hot dog stands, they had oyster stands. Wow. Yeah, we, oh. we, we just don't realize how much, you know, easily available nutrition there was that didn't require hunting, you know, which can be a little bit hit and miss. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the areas yeah. where humanity has tended to grow up, because all these major cities are obviously they're uh, they're by the water; they have to be. You have to be right, exactly right. So, Bill, I'm delighted to have had this chance to uh, interview you and to meet you, and I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for many decades of very very focused research on omega three. You're a very well respected uh, researcher on this. I think you've helped to bring a balance to the whole conversation. I think the omega-3 index is something I hope would become as standard as a cholesterol test. Uh, I wish the same for homocysteine. I'm fascinated to see how this codependence emerges because if it's true for the brain, it'll be true for the heart as well. We may indeed have underestimated the power of some of these nutrients because, because we don't realize how they work together. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure you'll continue the research and I will certainly keep looking at it. So thank you immensely um, for your work and for coming on my podcast. Well, thank you. It's been, been great chatting with you. Good to meet you. Um, and you've given me some good ideas for a research study I'm going to look at. So, All right. If you ever come to the UK, come and say hi. I will. I will. <laughs>